From the creator of the acclaimed Celebrate Poe podcast comes an audio journey into the life and works of America's greatest poet, Walt Whitman. Discover Whitman's cosmic perspective and how he captured the spirit of democracy through his groundbreaking verse. Join me, George Bartley, as I explore Whitman's impact on our culture. Official premiere for Celebrate Whitman is July the 4th, 2024. Thank you. Welcome to Celebrate Poe, Episode 45, The Sensuous Poet. The opening melody is Edgar Allan Poe's favorite song, Come Rest in This Bosom. Now, my name is George Bartley, and I want to thank you for downloading this podcast, and please consider subscribing, if you haven't already subscribed, and writing a review. Uh, If you're listening to this, uh, then it looks like uh, we're back in business again, and I'll be able to start publishing regularly. Thank you very much for your patience, and thanks to Buzzsprout for being such a classy host. Now, Celebrate Poe has reached the halfway point in our look at the Romantic poets. You can remember the first generation with the memory aid, Country and Western Bee. Yes, just imagine that little bee in cowboy boots and a cowboy hat, or CWB for memory aid purposes. Coleridge, Wordsworth, and Blake, or anything else that works for you. Now, for the next six episodes, Celebrate Poe will deal with the second generation of Romantic poets. Think books. First, B for Byron, then leave out the vowels, K for Keats, and S for Shelley. Byron, Keats, and Shelley. This episode will start with Keats, a very interesting character, and then Percy Bysshe Shelley, and finally, Lord Byron. By the way, uh... The uh, middle name of uh, Percy Shelley is Percy Bysshe, B-Y-S-S-H-E. Uh, think of Bishop, okay? Percy Bysshe Shelley, and then Lord Byron. But today, uh, it's Keats, John Keats. We're going to be taking up uh, the Romantic poets, the second generation, basically in order of their influence on Poe. Uh, Even John Allen, Poe's foster father, had very strong reactions regarding Byron, feelings that he angrily made known to Poe. And then, of course, uh, these poets had quite an an effect on uh, Poe's way of thinking. And then I will end the section after the Romantic poets with a vacation that Shelley, his young wife, and Lord Byron took to Lake Geneva in 1816 a vacation that resulted in a bet on who could write the best supernatural story. One of the guests, and I'll go into this later, wrote a book that many scholars feel became the basis for Dracula. But the winner of the bet was Mary, Shelley's wife. Her entry was the novel of Frankenstein. Now, Poe would have been abroad during much of this time, and reading some of the Romantic poets, and we know he did, that must have been a heady experience for him. Now, before Celebrate Poe continues, I think it might be useful to go back, in case you need some refreshing or you miss those episodes, and explain what Romantic literature, specifically Romantic poetry, means. 
When I was first looking at the writers of this period, I assumed that the Romantic poets would really be into our kind of modern-day romance. You know, soft lights, hearts, and flowers. And that would just might, just might be a good topic for Valentine's Day. Well, I was wrong. According to L.P. Smith, the word romantic in this sense carried a meaning of false and fictitious beings and feelings without real existence in fact or in human nature. Uh, and it also suggested old castles, mountains and forests, pastoral plains, waste and soli- solitary places, and love for wild nature, for mountains and moors. Ironically, even though all the members of the second generation, Keats, Shelley, and Lord Byron, died when they were relatively young, most of the writers of the first generation were still on the literary scene and very much alive after the writers of the second generation had passed away. The two groups of Romantic poets also differ slightly uh, when it came to place. Of course, they were all English-born, very, very English. But the uh, first generation of Coleridge, Wordsworth, and Blake tended to stay in England. The second generation traveled a great deal more. They were far more cosmopolitan. For example, and there are many more examples, but Keats spent the last few months of his life in Italy, and Lord Byron and Percy Shelley had that famous vacation in Switzerland where Mary Shelley came up with the idea for Frankenstein. Now, one area of real controversy today is were the second generation of Romantic poets like rock stars? Well, I think the answer is yes and no. Obviously, rock music had not been invented, (laughs) duh. But in a way, Kelly, Shelley, Keats, Shelley, and Byron, especially Byron, were the rock stars of their day. Unlike most writers, the poets of the second generation went out of their way to defy conventional morality, enjoyed lots of recreational sex, drugs, and drink, and wanted to die young. Now, I could go on here and write a lot about Byron, or say a lot about Byron, but I think it would be better to wait until the episodes specifically about Byron, until uh, I examine his works. Uh, I want to look at his actions, and then, of course, his larger-than-life personality. Uh, Lord Byron's uh, persona and attitude were were, uh, supposedly so far beyond the other members of the second generation that it would be almost unfair to attribute the same characteristics to Keats and Shelley. Byron's life was tangled up a great deal with that of Shelley's, but Lord Byron was really in a class all his own. Good afternoon, Mr. Bartley. Well, good afternoon, Mr. Poe, and uh, this must be Mr. Keats with you. This is indeed an honor, and I'm extremely grateful that Mr. Poe has asked you to be here. Quite so, Mr. Bartley. Your your podcast comes highly recommended, especially by Mr. Poe. Well, Mr. Keats, let's jump right into this interview by you telling us a little bit about your beginnings. Yes, Mr. Bartley. I I was born October the 31st, 1795, on the outskirts of London. Today, one might say that date was rather gothic, being that it occurred on the same day as Halloween. 
Uh, I was not a member of nobility. My, my father was Thomas Keats, manager of a livery stable by the name of the Swan and Hoop. My mother was Frances Jennings and was the daughter of the proprietor of the stables. When I was eight, I was entered at Mr. John Clark's school in Enfield. Why, Mr. Keats, you attended Enfield? I did not know that. Well, when I was a young boy, I attended school in Stoke Newington, about seven miles away. Mr. Clark was a liberal, and perhaps this was the reason that I developed a similar way of looking at the world. Enfield actually had a wider curriculum than many public schools that were far more prestigious, such as Eton. Anyway, I was somewhat fortunate that there were only about 75 boys in attendance. I must admit I was somewhat popular with the other students and gained the reputation of being quite a fighter. These were very good qualities to develop, being that I never grew past five feet tall. Mr. Keats, I must admit I became quite the scrapper at public school in England myself. Yes, uh, this podcast will take up the subject of education at Eton and Harrow later in describing Mr. Poe's experiences at Stoke Newington. When I was nine years old, my father was thrown from a horse and died from a skull fracture. My mother then married a bank clerk, but she soon decided to leave him. Then her second husband sold all the stables, and uh, we were left without a home. Then my dear grandfather died, leaving the children without a male protector. My mother seemed to have somewhat forgotten about us, and my grandmother, uh, Mrs. Jennings, allowed us to live with her. Then my mother appeared again in 1808, but died of consumption in 1810. Some might say, with a considerable amount of veracity, that I had a highly insecure existence. Mr. Keats, I, I can sympathize with you. My, my dear mother died from consumption when I was only three years old. It must be noted that by 1811, my grandmother... Alice Whaley Jennings was 76 of age and had charge of four orphan grandchildren. John was 16, George 14, Tom 12, and Fanny 8. Although my grandmother had inherited a considerable sum when her husband John had died in 1805, her subsequent decision to appoint a tea merchant named Richard Abbey as trustee, had a most devastating effect on the family finances. Instead of ensuring the children's financial future, it has been suggested by many biographers who have written about my life that Mr. Abbey withheld money from us. Mr. Keats, that is most lamentable. Fortunately, I made a solid friend of Mr. Cowden Clark, Mr. Clark was eight years my senior and had been my tutor during my first years at Enfield. Mr. Clark was most instrumental in engendering a love of music and poetry in me. 
one can easily surmise that it was because I had watched my mother die that I decided to become a doctor. I became apprentice to a Dr. Hammond when I was 16 years of age in 1811. I realized that my professional interest, or at least I thought so at the time, was to be the study and practice of medicine. So your major interest completely changed to medicine? Yes, those were my feelings at the time. Uh, You may remember that I was apprenticed to Dr. Hammond. Now, I ended my time with him and entered Guy's Hospital. Uh, I certainly was quite interested in literature, but felt that medicine would be a more practical goal. At first, I attempted to be an industrious student, but during the spring of 1816, I began to seriously lose interest in medicine in favor of poetry. Uh, But uh, I passed my examinations that year and became qualified to practice as an apothecary and a surgeon. During this time, I renewed my friendship with Mr. Clark and became friends with another poet, Mr. Lee Hunt. I was overjoyed to learn that Mr. Hunt was most impressed with my poetry. Mr. Hunt also encouraged me to become a liberal in politics, causing many critics to actually become hostile to my work. So did you then decide to give up writing? No, Mr. Bartley, I believe you would know the answer to that. Actually, I gave up medicine completely for poetry in 1817. My time at Guy's Hospital had been a most fortuitous one, but my fascination for poetry was much stronger. I had received a modest inheritance and thought that this might support me until I became a successful poet. Excuse me, Mr. Keats, we're going to take a break right now and talk about sonnets. I think it might make some of the content later on in this episode much clearer. I'm not going to get all English class in the weeds on you. Just remember that a sonnet is a poem with 14 lines. There are several kinds of sonnets, which I'll probably go into later, uh, but uh, I don't want to overload you. All I want you to remember is that a sonnet is a poem with 14 lines. If a person says that they have a sonnet that they want to read, then you can quietly sigh with relief that this poem is really not going to take all that long. You can make it through it, precisely because it is just 14 lines, and the writer has to be concise in what he or she is saying. I know long poems can be really, really tough, uh, and it is too easy to end up with that reaction of, when will this thing ever be over? Now, here is a great sonnet by John Donne. By the way, because they're so relatively short, sonnets are great to tape in the bathroom above the sink, and you can go to work memorizing them uh, while you're washing your hands. For more about washing your hands while memorizing during this time of COVID, check out episode 37 of Celebrate Poe, Don't Drink the Water, Stupid. Now, in this sonnet, John Donne argues against the power of death. He speaks to death as a person, that's called personification, and warns death against pride in his power, and eventually, in the end, death thou shalt die. Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow. 
Die not, poor death, nor yet canst thou kill me from rest and sleep, which but thy pictures be much pleasure, then from thee much more must must flow. And soonest our best men with thee do go, rest of their bones and soul's delivery, thou art slave to fate, chance, kings, and desperate men, and dust with poison, war, and sickness dwell, and poppy or charms can make us sleep as well, and better than thy stroke. Why swellest thou then, one short sleep past? We wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death thou shalt die. Another example, really good example of a sonnet, is How Do I Love Thee by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. The sonnet is unique for the time period in that it is written from a woman's perspective. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach. When feeling out of sight for the ends of being, an ideal grace, I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need, by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life, and if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. And then, of course, uh, there is what is probably the most well-known sonnet of them all, Shall I Compare Thee to a Summer's Day by William Shakespeare. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime, too hot, the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Now, Mr. Keats, uh, would you favor us with one of your sonnets? I also wrote a well-received sonnet, a most well-received sonnet, by the name of On First Looking into Chapman's Homer. You see, I could not read the Greek language, and being able to read Chapman's English translation was a wonderful revelation to me. I compared myself to the overjoyed scientist who finds out about a new planet, or a sailor such as an adventurer who discovers new places or the kind of joy the teams of researchers must have felt when they discovered a vaccine for COVID, or the recent voyages to Mars. Yes, and uh, in the first four lines, I discussed my travels in the realms of gold. Such realms could be either real travels or imagined. That is for the reader to decide. 
In the second part, I, I introduce Homer, the Greek poet who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, this sonnet was published in a volume to basically very little acclaim. Oh, the friends I had made in London certainly complimented my writing, but their verbal acclaim sold few copies. Much have I travelled in the realms of gold, and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many western islands have I been which bards and fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told that deep-browed Homer ruled as his domain. Yet did I never breathe its pure serene till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. And then felt I like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his kin, or like stout Cortez when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific, and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. Mr. Keats, could you tell us a little bit about writing the poem? Yes, I wrote it after staying up all night with Mr. Charles Cowden Clark. I was reading George Chapman's translations of the Iliad and the Odyssey. I wrote the poem in just a few hours. Granted, some of my facts may have been incorrect. For, for example, I later learned that Balboa, not Cortez, was the first European to see the Pacific Ocean. But my goal was not historical accuracy, but to express my excitement at the immediacy and excitement of the translation. What did you decide to do next? After mulling the subject, I came to the conclusion that writing a long poem would be a wise endeavour. I wrote a rather involved work called Endymion. The narrative involved the shepherd Endymion wedding the goddess Diana and therefore gaining eternal bliss. I worked on the poem for almost a year, but Endymion was harshly criticized. Perhaps it, it was because of my liberal politics. Mr. Keats, you might find it interesting that when the actress Julie Andrews first pulls a potted plant out of her bag in the motion picture Mary Poppins... Mr. Bartley, where is this going? She recites the first line from Endymion. Now together, everyone. One, two, three. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Let's try that one again. One, two, three. A thing a of thing beauty, of beauty is, a joy is, a joy is a joy forever. Yes, as ghosts, we have easy access to your motion pictures. I did not know that. But uh, getting back to Endymion, Mr. Keats, could you favor us with the first few lines from Endymion? A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness but still will keep a bower quiet for us, and a sleep full of sweet dreams, and health, and quiet breathing. Yes, the poem that I worked so hard in writing was to be virtually ignored due to devastating reviews. Who reviewed it? Blackwood's Magazine. Their terrible reviews virtually stopped the sales of the volume. Yes, and, and we will discuss that at length later, Mr. Poe. I became a frequent visitor to the home of Mr. John Hamilton Reynolds beginning in 1816. 
Mr. Reynolds had originally wanted to be a writer, but he was a married man and obviously quite concerned about supporting his wife. So he gave up literature for the law. Even so, he still found time for some writing and, and doing reviews. I wrote a poem, a sonnet, on January the 16th, 1817, about the family's elderly cat. A cat? Fourteen lines about a cat? Yes, uh, the cat appeared to be rather elderly and somewhat battered, and the only thing that appeared young about it was its soft fur. To Mrs. Reynolds' cat. Cat who hast passed thy grand climactic. How many mice and rats hast in thy days destroyed? How many titbits stolen? Gaze with those bright languid segments green and prick those velvet ears. But prithee do not stick thy latent talons in me and uprise thy gentle mew and tell me all thy phrase of fish and mice and rats and tender chick. Nay, look not down, nor lick thy dainty wrists, for all thy wheezy asthma, and for all thy tail's tip is nicked off, and though the fists of many a maid have given thee many a maul, still is that fur as soft as when the lists in youth thou enterest on glass-bottomed wall." Mr. Keats, I want to talk with you about a characteristic of your poetry that many scholars have written about. Wouldst thou be referring to sensuousness? Yes, I'm glad to see that you immediately sense what I'm emphasizing. Oh, many people in your current society define sensual as sexual. That can certainly be part of it. But I believe a sensual animal or feeling or emotion affects the senses. Hearing, seeing, touching, smelling, and tasting. Sensuous poet does not exhibit ideas. Instead, sensual poet gives delight to the senses. It could appeal to our eyes by evoking beautiful and colorful images. It can evoke sensations in our ears through rhythm and musical sounds. It can evoke sweet smells to our nose through pleasing, pleasing senses of smell. Some have called me a worshipper of beauty. I certainly do look for beauty everywhere, and it is through one's senses that first show to an individual the beauty of things. I try to write my poetry from the impressions that kindle my imagination. For example, in my poem, Ode to a Grecian Urn, I wrote, Beauty is truth, truth is beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. Some have said that is a rather simplistic belief. Others have said that I sincerely believe it is simplistic to realize that real beauty is truth and nothing more. That truth alone is the beautiful one. I do believe strongly in loving nature for its own sake. My sincere passion for nature is exhibited by giving my whole soul to the enjoyment of nature's sensuous beauty. 
I believe that true poetry originates from sense impressions, and I would like to think that my poetry appeals to the individual's sense of sight, of hearing, of taste and smell and touch and hot and cold, the things and sights we feel. In one of my letters, for example, I wrote summarizing my overall philosophy, Oh, for a life of sensation than of thoughts. That is very interesting. Can, can you give us some examples? Certainly. Uh, to express sensations experienced through the sense of sight, I wrote such lines as, as these from Ode to a Grecian Urn. Her hair was long, her foot was light, and her eyes were wild. I can almost see her hair, feet, and eyes. In Ode to a Grecian Urn, I also wrote to appeal to your mind's eye. O Attic shape, fair attitude, with breed of marble men and maidens overwrought, with forest branches and the trodden weed. And in an Ode to a Nightingale, the music of the nightingale produces feelings of pain in my heart. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Uh, yes, I know I will be discussing your ode to a nightingale in more detail later in the following episode, an episode where I slightly compare your nightingale to Mr. Poe's The Raven. And in uh, Ode to a Grecian Urn, I wrote about music that cannot be heard. Heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. Therefore, ye soft pipes, play on. I even wrote about the sensation of extreme cold in my poetry. The opening lines of La Belle Dame Sans Merci are... The sedge is withered from the lake and no birds sing. Perhaps the best example of this sensuousness is in Ode to Autumn. In this ode, I describe the season of autumn in sensuous terms in which all senses are called forth. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness, close bosom friend of the maturing sun. For me, autumn is the season of apples on mossed cottage tree, of fruits which are ripe to the core, and of later, flowers for bees. Thus autumn to me is full of pictures of delights of sense. I would like to think of myself as a poet of sensations. The expressions I use are rich in sensuous quality. Delicious face, melodious plot, sunburnt mirth, embalmed darkness and anguish moist. And as I began to mature as a writer, I felt that I began to express an intellectual as well as spiritual passion. Now, during the summer of 1818, I began a walking tour to Cromarty, Scotland. I must admit that the experience broadened my acquaintance with the environment and its beauty and I also learned more about dealing with different kinds of people. 
but a genuine negative of the walking tour may have been the hardships that I was forced to endure. For example, even though I experienced nature during the daytime, I was often forced to spend many of the nights on the mud floor of a shepherd hut. This may have weakened my physical constitution and therefore shortened my life. I developed an extremely sore throat in Inverness and realized that it would have been best for me to return to London by boat. That fall, I began a new long poem, Hyperion. Unfortunately, I never finished the poem, but scholars have commented that my control of language in Hyperion had greatly improved, that I had become a first-class poet. It was as though Endymion and Hyperion were the work of two different writers. Uh, Then during the latter period of 1818, I cared for my dear brother Tom. You see, Tom had been stricken with consumption. On the 1st of December, Tom died at 19. I had cared for my brother for three months, and many scholars firmly believe that I was already weakened and began to show signs of depression, hoarseness, insomnia, and an extremely sore throat. In other words, it appeared that I, myself, was developing consumption. Unfortunately, I was also running out of money, and and I was in love with a wonderful lady by the name of Fanny Braun. I worked on a play with a friend in hopes of earning money, but none of the London theatres would accept our work. But during April and May of 1819, I experienced a new energy and wrote Ode to Psyche, Ode on Melancholy, Ode on a Grecian Urn, and Ode on Indolence. In January, I wrote The Eve of St. Agnes. Oh, yes, I almost forgot Ode to a Nightingale. I can speak of that at length in the following episode. And yes, I can speak of my time in Rome and the final days of my earthly life. Thank you, Mr. Bartley. Thank you, Mr. Keats. Sources include Complete Poems and Selected Letters of John Keats by John Keats, John Keats' Bloom's Modern Critical Views by Harold Bloom, The Cambridge Companion to Keats by Susan J. Wolfson, Edgar Allan Poe, A Critical Biography by Arthur Hobson Quinn, The Poe Log, A Documentary Life of Edgar Allan Poe by Dwight R. Thomas and David K. Jackson, Poe in Place by Philip Edward Phillips, and the book and CD Accents, a manual for actors by Robert Blumenfeld. And check out my podcast website at celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. That Celebrate Poe is all one word, and of course the Buzzsprout is all one word. Celebratepoe.buzzsprout.com. Click on the episode you want to learn more about to see its show notes and a transcript. Well, thank you very much for making it this far as we take a deep dive into the life and times and influences of America Shakespeare and how he has influenced our world. 
Join us for the second and final episode about John Keats, The Raven versus The Nightingale.